Welcome to this week's show. Now, there are two ways that society, that people, that businesses can get electricity. They can get electricity from a centralized delivery point, like your utility. That's what we've had for 100 years. And these are basically remote power plants, solar farms, and windmills. Or you can get your electricity from distributed sources, local sources, like rooftop solar on homes and businesses. Now, this is called distributed generation, but I like a better term called behind the meter. Basically, if it's behind the meter, that means that the generation and storage now is owned by the customer and it's almost always less expensive now here's the dilemma here's why keep in mind utilities generate their profits by selling power and owning the power plants and utility power lines they don't want customers to generate their own power they lose revenues so they make a point that utility generation and distribution is better and cheaper and they claim that if many customers had their own solar uh pshaw pshaw then there's a cost shift to customers that don't have their own systems they really just want more assets, more distribution assets, more generation assets on which to generate their guaranteed 10% rate of return. This cost shift argument is nonsense. Distributed generation or behind the meter solar and storage is disrupting utilities business. It's easy to have literally millions of small rooftop solar power plants on homes and businesses. Anyone with sun can have their own power plant. You can be locally self-reliant. In fact, There's an organization called the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, or ILSR. And my guest this week is John Farrell. He directs the Democratic Energy Program at ILSR. John's best known for his research and papers on economic and environmental benefits of local ownership of decentralized renewable energy. I'm a big fan of that. And he's one of our best thinkers and communicators on these subjects. So welcome to the show, John. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Sorry for that long intro, but it's just such an important topic. If you could first give us a little bit of background about the ILSR. Yeah. Well, we've been we're a nonprofit organization. We've got offices in three different states. We're nationally focused. I like to joke that we are a national local organization, which is to say we support efforts to give communities more control over their local economy across the country. And we do that in many different ways in the energy sector, around local energy generation, local banking, local and independent businesses, publicly owned broadband networks, and even dealing with the waste and recycling networks and making sure that the more of those jobs and those resources can be used locally. Ah, okay. All right. So basically, your kind of concept is larger is not necessarily better. And what really spurred me to bring you back as a guest, because you were a terrific guest a few years ago, is the article that you recently did called Small Scale Solar is a Better Deal Than Big. So what's the high-level takeaway of this article? And then we'll kind of dig into the details. Well, the high-level takeaway is that we discovered in a careful analysis of the benefits and costs of energy generation that you actually get a better deal when you are buying that energy from your own rooftop, when you're producing that energy on your own rooftop, and if you're buying it from a big utility-scale power plant that's far away. And that's rather surprising and rather against the conventional wisdom about the cost of energy generation. I'd say that the conventional wisdom has been warped by a lack of good facts about this and, and people basically just not looking at their electric bill. But you know, I, I see that your you know, utilities are putting in utility-scale power plants at 3 or $0.04 cents a watt. When we put in a residential system here just in Silicon Valley, it's 6 or $0.07 cents a watt over its lifetime. And the, the residential electric rates in the country average about 12 Here in Silicon Valley, it's more like 20 So, I mean, if you just look at the numbers, it doesn't make sense. 
sense. But um, it would be really good if you could step us through the logic, step by step, of that article that you wrote about how we come to the conclusion that smaller is better. So, you know, a traditional chart that looks at kind of the economies of scale of solar will, you know, look like this kind of declining line where the small stuff costs the most to generate energy. And then down on the far right-hand side of the chart, you'll be looking at the the lowest cost for the largest stuff. And what's usually missing from that chart are two key things. One is the cost to deliver that power. And the way that I like to think about this is, you know, Amazon, for example, is a very popular retailer because they offer you free shipping. And that shipping comes all the way to your door. And if Amazon instead only delivered that package to a distribution center 10 miles from your home and then you had to go pick it up, that product would no longer be as valuable. So that's something that we need to take into consideration. How far do we have to deliver the power that we produce? And of course, when you've done it on your rooftop, you have no delivery cost. It's right where you're using energy. And if you're building a power plant far away from a city, you do have a delivery cost. And then the second piece is appropriately valuing energy that's used on site because a large-scale power plant has to send all that power somewhere else. They're not a consumer of energy. They're just a power plant. And there's the consumers of that energy are far away. And whereas somebody who is using power on site has, again, no delivery costs, but also energy use that they can offset right there. And so what I do in the article is I essentially walk us through what happens when we start adding in those delivery costs. And we find that takes that far right-hand side of the chart, those very large projects, and it significantly raises the cost of energy when we have to talk about how far do we have to deliver that energy in order for it to be useful. And then the second piece, looking at the value of being able to use energy right where we produce it, helps lower the left-hand side of the chart. It says, hey, for all these projects where we are producing energy on our rooftops, you know, a, a good rule of thumb is about half the energy from a rooftop solar array can actually be used right at the moment that it's produced in the home or the business where it's being produced. And, you know, it's going to be more in some and less in another. But what that says is that really only about half the energy that is produced from that solar array actually has to be purchased by the grid. Because the other half is just like, if you installed an energy-efficient refrigerator, you're just using less energy. And that's what it looks like to the grid when you're using solar energy right from your rooftop. And so we're really talking about kind of a 50% discount on power that comes off of these rooftop solar arrays going to the grid, because maybe that price, like you said, in Silicon Valley is 20 cents a kilowatt hour, but you're only going to have to buy half of it, because half of it's going to be used right there to reduce the energy consumption of that property owner. And so that other half then can be purchased. When you think about it, you're purchasing, you're getting all of that load reduction, 100 kilowatt hours, if you will, but you're buying it. You only have to buy half of it. And so you get to do that at a discount. Yeah, that makes a big difference. And and I, even taking it a step further, is is whatever you're not using, it doesn't go all the way back 20 miles away or 100 miles away to the power plant. It goes to your neighbors. That's where those electrons go. So it's, it's really good. Now, you, you mentioned one other thing, which is the local spending value, the, the investments that are made in the community by building these local power plants, and i.e., like my installation crews are getting compensated and paid to put solar on rooftops in Silicon Valley, and they're spending that money locally, and there's value for that. Yeah, I, that's actually one of the things I find most important in this conversation, and, is, and frankly, most often left out, because we usually have our conversations about costs of energy in places like public regulatory commissions, these public bodies that oversee the transactions of energy and the behaviors of utilities. And, you know, you got to have a law degree or, or spend a lot of time walking out on policy to participate there. But they don't consider this other really crucial element of local energy production, which is where these dollars are flowing. You know, if my community right now spends 
say, $100 million a year buying energy and we're importing it from somewhere else. And instead, we can build lots of local energy systems and keep those dollars in our community. That's a real value. Those jobs that we create, that local spending, like you said, from your employees in the community is a real material benefit to communities and something that we should value. And what we found is that it's much more significant than we've previously imagined. So if you can, you know, let's go back to that number, 20 cents a kilowatt hour for the cost of energy delivered to homes in Silicon Valley. Well, if you build a residential solar array, if you build a a solar array on a home, about four cents a kilowatt hour out of the value of the energy that's produced comes from those local spending benefits, the installation labor, the permitting and interconnection fees that are associated with the project, even the cost, you know, to advertise, to try to acquire customers by those local solar companies, all of those dollars stay in the local economy. And it's a fairly large fraction, actually, of the value of that project. And when you add that in, in addition to the, you know, delivery cost considerations and the factor of how much energy is used on site, we find that local energy can actually be much cheaper for a community than large-scale energy imports, even though at the site where you produce the energy, it is initially more expensive. When you take all these other factors into account, all of the factors that actually matter in the energy getting to where we need to use it and in the operation of our local economy, it's actually a much better deal for communities to build energy locally than it is to build it far away and to import it. Yeah, no, I mean, just looking at our systems that we're putting in, I'm just picking a number, $20,000. Out of that $20,000, only six or $7,000 is equipment that we have to buy from you know U.S. solar panel manufacturers or overseas solar panel manufacturers. All the rest... Sales tax stays in the state, you know, the, all the rest is labor, insurance, employees, uh, advertising, marketing, support, that all stays in the local community, and that's really huge. I'm just going to set the clock back about 12 years to when we were working on the California Solar Initiative, and that was the, the big rebate program that we had here that kind of jump-started the solar industry, and I helped out with some of the analysis, and one of the things we did is we kind of looked over a 10-year period from 2007 to 2016, how much would be saved by people in California, if there was rooftop solar, instead of putting in lots of generation transmission distribution systems. And we modeled $7 billion in avoided cost infrastructure spending if we put in solar. In other words, the utilities would spend $7 billion less if the generating systems were on the roof or what, as opposed to, you know, out in the desert somewhere. So how do we change that narrative? I mean, the utilities are coming back and saying this is this really bad cost shift. How do we get people in utility commissions to understand that we're saving all this money from delivery costs and net metered power and local spending. What to do, John? I think one of the things that I've seen as successful and we, you know, it's really pioneered in Austin, the municipal utility there, Austin Energy, and then in Minnesota in 2013 and 2014 was forcing utilities to do a fair accounting of the costs and benefits of rooftop solar. Because what we find is it's very easy to claim that, oh, if my neighbor installs solar, I'm somehow subsidizing them because they're buying less power. But there are a couple of things that aren't being taken into account. As you mentioned, there are all these potential public benefits of that privately held solar array, which is avoiding the cost of upgrades to the grid system or providing energy at times of the highest energy demand. And the other thing is, of course, that the capital that was provided to build that system came from the private sector. It was an individual who provided the money to build that and probably at a lower cost than a utility to build something. Utilities have a relatively low cost of capital among industry, but it's still higher than, for example, a homeowner who can take out a home equity loan. 
And so we've got a couple of advantages there that often aren't accounted for. And one way that we can do this is talking about what's called the value of solar. And so in Minnesota, for example, we passed a law and it had like five different categories of things that had to be accounted for, but it said, hey, utilities, you need to make a calculation that accounts for what solar is worth to your system, how it avoids the purchase of fossil fuels to run fossil fuel power plants, how it avoids the need to build new transmission and distribution power lines, and also how it avoids pollution because solar is likely to offset fossil fuel power generation that has a lot of other kinds of pollution, whether it's carbon dioxide and its contribution to climate change, or whether it's sulfur dioxide or other pollutants that harm our lakes and waters and our health. And so those, I think, are really crucial. And what we've seen in most of the places that have done a calculation like that is that the, the compensation people get through net metering, the ability to reduce their energy bill kind of one for one with each kilowatt hour they produce from solar is actually less than they ought to be paid based on the value of that energy. So there has been a cost shift, as utilities like to use that phrase, but it's generally been the solar owners that have subsidized everybody else because the value of the energy that they've been producing is actually higher than the amount of money that they've been getting from the utility system for producing that energy. And so I think that's a really important lesson is that we need good data and we need to require, especially if we're talking in a public regulatory environment or a legislature that's going to make the rules about how people should be compensated, we've got to have good data about what it is that accounts fairly for all the costs and benefits of solar. And what we found is that when that happens, solar is much more valuable than is often accounted for when the utility alone is speaking. Yeah, it's interesting about the whole cost shift argument and what you're suggesting based on your analysis is that we turn the cost shift around and say, yeah, people that have solar on the roof, there's a cost shift to them. They're paying more because they're subsidizing the rest of the grid. And I think that might be a really good way because the term cost shift has kind of entered our energy vernacular. And if we can actually use that same term and say, oh yeah, you know, there's no cost shift to the utilities, it's cost shift to the solar customers, that could be more effective. I think there's a secondary issue too that comes up a lot where utilities will, I, I like to describe it as they like to use low income customers as sort of a human shield where they say, oh, we're really concerned about solar because of the potential impact on low income customers. And I think one of the things that really burns me about that is that Across almost all utilities, they have energy efficiency programs, and they're usually in the form of like a $100 rebate or a $500 rebate for somebody who puts in a new efficient air conditioner or buys an energy efficient refrigerator. And you know who can't ever use those rebates are low-income folks, because when they go shopping for those new replacement appliances, they're going to buy the cheapest thing that they can afford because that's what's available for them. So we have all of these kinds of things like energy efficiency that provide a system-wide benefit and benefits for people who can afford them. And utilities have never cared a whit about making sure that low-income folks can participate. So when a goaler, my argument back to them is, hey, if there is some sort of cost shift going on, the solution to it, even if it was true that solar customers got more benefits than non-solar customers, then we need to figure out how to let everybody go solar and share in that benefit. The answer is not to shut down solar. It is to make sure that everybody has the ability to participate. And that's a totally different problem to solve and a different way of solving a problem than the utilities are looking for. Yeah, it's always amazing to me. We, we kind of talked about this, about the two-faced arguments that we're dealing with from the utilities, because 
we're putting in battery chargers for some EV customers, and when we go to put one of these in, the utility doesn't even blink when we put in a 40-amp charger or even a bigger charger because they're going to be selling more electricity. But if we try and put in a solar power system or if we try and install a battery system, I mean, it could take a month to get interconnected for solar. It's taking six months to get interconnected for battery. They're losing that revenue and that asset, and they fight it tooth and claw. And that just increases the soft cost, which increases the solar cost for everybody else. So just kind of thinking ahead, we're looking at what happens when there's too much solar power. Are you aware of any problems that have ever happened in the U.S. or in Europe or in Hawaii where there was too much solar power on the grid? No, not really. I mean, what I have seen is kind of forecasts of prospective problems, which is to say what will happen as solar continues to grow and all of a sudden we're going from a, a time when there used to be a rise in the overall load on the grid during you know midday and afternoon and now all of a sudden there's so much energy coming from the sun on our grid systems that we're even looking at turning down the power output from existing power plants so really the first problem from solar is for people the incumbents who own power plants they're going to see a loss of revenue from the competition from solar because it costs nothing to let your solar array run and to collect the sol- you know the sun rays coming down and to turn it into electricity. There's no operations and maintenance cost, really. There's no fuel cost. So solar is always going to outcompete everything else once it's been put onto the grid system. So there is an economic problem for utility companies and power plant owners in terms of, quote-unquote, too much solar. And that is just too much competition. And in an industry where there hasn't been a lot of competition, I can understand why they're concerned by that. But from a technical standpoint, we really haven't reached yet, even in California and Hawaii, an issue where there is too much solar in aggregate. There are certain areas of the grid where we are getting this such a saturation where, hey, maybe at the substation level where the power gets stepped up from you know, the wires that run to our homes and businesses and up onto the transmission system, uh, that we might need to talk about some upgrades to the system if we continue to build up the amount of solar that's in those areas. But the technical issues are really more in the future, and it's really more the economic issues that are driving the conversation right now, which is a problem, of course, because when we talk about how we want to incorporate the most clean, cheap solar as possible, we do tend to get caught up in these issues of, well, who's going to be the loser in that situation? And it tends to be people who have a lot of power in the system around the decision-making. Right. So the utilities are the ones that are kind of, they're going to lose if the practical solution goes into place, a practical, less expensive solution. So looking at your example with too much local solar, the utilities would love, and they're actually supporting battery storage systems. As long as these battery storage systems go in at the substation or at the generating plant, the utilities are all for it. And of course, they'll rate-base those investments. And those systems work great and deliver a bunch of container loads of huge lithium-ion battery arrays with inverters and control systems. Yeah, that way you can soak up that excess local power. But it's going to be expensive for everybody. It's not going to lower electric rates. On the other hand, what we're doing in California, and we're just seeing a lot of take-up on these systems, is we're putting in battery storage systems for homeowners. And as you pointed out with solar, the homeowners are paying for the battery systems. They're providing the grid benefits. They can be operated so that when electric rates are high based on price signals and there's maybe a shortage 
of electricity than using those batteries. And when there's a surplus of electricity, then those batteries can be recharged. So that's the, the most economic way to do it. But the entities that have the most influence in these discussions are the utilities, and they're spending millions of dollars at the Public Utilities Commission to lobby for them putting in the batteries instead of homeowners. So it's a challenge. So how do you see us kind of getting over that dilemma, that hump, and uh, arguing effectively? Well, I think to some degree, as long as the rules for the electricity market or lack of a market, if you will, remain the same, that we are always going to have that tension. I mean, investor-owned utility companies in California and in 29 other states still make their money when they build things, whether that's power lines or power plants or energy storage systems at substations. And so, you know, for them to be able to fulfill their legal obligation to shareholders, they're going to want to build stuff. No, there's just so much opportunity, so much potential for solar combined with battery storage. So I'm looking forward to that. Hey, John, how can people get in touch with you at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance? Well, the best way to get a flavor of what we're doing is to just visit our website, ilsr.org, and you can check out our energy program. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter where we kind of cover the big trends that's going on in the solar and, and renewable energy space and the innovative ways that local communities are doing things. If you have a question just for me, I'm happy to answer it. My email address is jfarrell at ilsr.org. Okay, great. Well, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. And thanks, John, for joining us. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts.